We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 23 today as we look at part two of Good News for Pharisees. You will remember, some of you, from four weeks ago, we looked at part one, in which we looked at the beginning of chapter 23 and the end of chapter 23, in which Matthew um, frames uh, this whole episode. This is a fairly well-known passage, the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. It was providential that uh, last week, Pastor Lee Ledbetter had us reflecting on uh, the time that Jesus um, actually was visiting with Simon, who was a Pharisee in Simon's house, and this woman came, who Simon reminds us was a sinner. So often we read about the Pharisees. The story, for example, of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. Or, for example, as we were reminded last week, the story of Jesus at Simon's house. Or this passage, for example, the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And at hearing these things or reading these various accounts, I don't know if you have found yourself doing it, but I find myself doing it, thinking, phew, glad he's talking about them. Glad he's talking about that person. So glad I'm not that kind of person. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm not a sinner, a hypocrite, or in a Pharisee like that, which is, in fact, how I have found myself praying sometimes, thanking the Lord that I'm like the tax collector and not like that bad old proud Pharisee. It rarely occurs to us that that is, in fact, the prayer of a Pharisee. Our response and our arrogant dismissiveness of the Pharisees is evidence that, in fact, we ourselves have often fallen prey to the very spirit of the age which we find ourselves despising in the Pharisees. What would it look like for us to actually love a Pharisee? As Scott Sauls reminded us recently in a post, and I paraphrase, being unloving to a Pharisee, being an unloving Pharisee toward an unloving Pharisee is being a Pharisee. <laughs> oh, it gets complicated, doesn't it? The Pharisees figure prominently throughout all the Gospels because, not because they are bad people per se, but because they are the embodiment of the spirit of every way every age to which we are all dangerously vulnerable and against which we must all watch vigilantly and fight tirelessly. For it is a spirit that in every age tirelessly and relentlessly prowls about seeking whom it may captivate, blind, bind, and devour. So it's helpful to stop and give special attention, special hearing 
to passages such as the one in front of us today. To learn more about the foundational tendencies of the fallen human heart against which we must all guard and against which we must all engage in vigilant, exhausting battle that are embodied in these gospel accounts by the Pharisees. And to be reminded of the great love of Jesus that compels him to call out to us, indeed to call us out, and to warn us of the dangers to which we are naturally inclined and so to which we are particularly vulnerable. So if you would, read with me. Matthew chapter 23, we're going to begin in the middle, we're just going to read the middle portion, chapter 23, verses 13 through 36. And Jesus is speaking to the crowds and to his disciples, and he addresses these comments to the scribes and Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold in the temple or the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be cleaned. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly are be appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if, he had, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure 
of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in their synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of, of the of from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Hard words, good words, good news for us, his people living here in 21st century Flintstone, Georgia. So let us ask that by his spirit present and powerful with us today, we may actually have the courage to hear the good news of Jesus. Father, for the gift of this, your word, we give you thanks. As strange and as harsh and as grating as it may sound in our ears, we pray as Paul prayed for us and that we would indeed be strengthened in our inner being by your spirit, that we may actually hear the good news of your great love for us in these words. So, Father, to that end, we pray that you would feed us and feast us upon your truth, guard us from error, that we may indeed hear the call of your great love, for we pray it in Jesus. Amen. It's true, isn't it, that so often in our life, as we seek to live faithfully in a profoundly poisoned and fallen world, we find ourselves groaning, exhausted, dried up, as though we've been wandering about aimlessly for years in a wilderness. When I was growing up, way back in that great day, there was a television program. It was a variety show that I watched from week to week, almost faithfully. And um, I'm, I'm ashamed to confess that, but I loved it. And, uh, and there was this song that came on every week. And it goes something like this. I will not sing it. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, thank you. Deep, dark depression and excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Ho, 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 ho. Buck Owens and Roy Clark, prophets of our age. And of course, many of you recognize that that was that great classic hee-haw. And we often find ourselves, one of the reasons that song is so easy to memorize, not only is because it's pithy, but because it gives expression to way that we feel so often. Woe is me. 
Our instinct when we find ourselves feeling that way and our culture's instinct is to look all around us to find that which is to ca- the cause of our gloom and our despair and our agony and to do away with it, to cast off relationships and responsibilities that appear to be causing the gloom and the despair and the excessive misery. After all, as that great YouTube prophetess said, ain't nobody got time for that. No one needs all that negativity. Unfollow them. But brothers and sisters, we need to understand something. We are in the midst of a great battle. And war hurts. And war is hard. And it's exhausting. We are in a battle for the soul of our nation. We are in the battle in a battle for the soul of our children. We are in a battle for the soul of our church. We are in a battle for our very souls. Your soul. My soul. It's a battle. It's a war. It is not a battle against flesh and blood. It is not a battle against white, black, or brown. It is not a battle against legal, illegal, or dreamers. It's not a battle against gun-toters or teetotalers. It is not a battle against, between Republicans and Democrats and independents. It's not a battle between private school and public school or homeschooling. It's not a battle between rich and poor, not a battle between the one percenters or the 99 percenters, between the early adopters or the Luddites, contemporary traditional or blended worship. It's not a battle between long sermons or short homilies. It's not a battle between law and grace. It's not a battle between do what I want freedom or oppressive legalistic calls to the obedience of faith. Those are all just symptoms of our battle against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 6. What Scripture calls elsewhere the spirit of our age that manipulates and conspires with what the Puritans described as the world and the flesh and the devil. It is the spirit of the age that in its passion to prowl about and pursue and destroy like a roaring lion as Peter describes it. And lest we misunderstand the destruction of our souls wrought by the enemy of our souls does not look like the carnage of war. It masquerades as beauty as relaxation, as comfort, as ease, as rest and refreshment. All conspiring to woo you and draw you and entrance you and slowly devour you. Slowly beguiling your passions, reorganizing your priorities, recalibrating your standards until you can no longer feel or think or speak or see or walk straight. Having the appearance of godliness and righteousness 
it will have sucked your soul dry so that in fact you become like a whitewashed tomb. Our loving King Jesus cares far too much for his kingdom and his citizens in his kingdom to let this happen without a fight. Without warning us, without teaching us to look for it in ourselves so that we can recognize the battle that rages within our souls. As we come to this passage, it's helpful to remember that this is the last major discourse in Matthew's gospel account. Matthew has organized his account with various discourses structured throughout. The first major discourse is what we commonly know as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, as most of you know, begins with blessings. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. We know those as the Beatitudes. This final lengthy discourse that comes towards the end of Matthew's account, immediately before the, uh, in Matthew's account, the uh, betrayal and arrest of Jesus Christ, begins here in chapter 23 and leads out with these woes. Woe, 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 seven of them. The language of blessings and woe, or we might call it the language of blessings on the one hand and curses on the other, actually has a long history. It goes all the way back to the final sermons that Moses preached before the people went into the promised land. The blessing and curses found in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. When you remember me, so the logic of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 goes like this. When you remember me as you enter into the land, when you keep my commandments, it will go well with you. Blessedness. However, should you forget me, should you neglect my commandments, should you find yourselves doing what is right in your own eyes, it will go poorly with you in the land curses. And we know from the account of Joshua and then later in Judges, that's precisely what happened. Within a generation, they had forgotten their God. They were neglecting his commandments. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. Because it's the natural bent of our heart You see, the blessings and the curses are not merely the arbitrary whim of some despot. This is actually rather the loving instruction that their Redeemer God, Yahweh, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, was declaring to them through, their, through his servant Moses. It was the instruction, the loving instruction of the Father who designed and created the world and life in it. And he is saying, this is how I have designed my world. This is how I've designed you. This is how I've designed you to flourish in my world. If you live this way, it will go well with you. But if you flaunt the design and live in in whatever way seems right to you, it will not go well with you. Please, my children, hear me. You see, the benefit 
of this structure of the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy. And here, the blessings and the woes in Matthew's telling of the story is that if we find things going poorly for ourselves, we can actually look back at this rubric of blessings and curses and use it as a sort of diagnostic tool. Why is it going so poorly with me? Oh, I see. I've been forgetting my God. I've been neglecting his commandments. You see, the, the structure of blessings on the one hand and curses on the other are a gift of the loving God to help us live well in this world. So as the Israelites came into the promised land, here they come and they, they settle right there between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And what, would, what happened was they were told to divide the people and go up one on either, on either mount, a group on either mountain. And from Mount Gerizim were to be read the blessings and from Mount Ebal were to be read the curses so that the mountains themselves became a visible manifestation of the parameters of the good life that the Lord has granted to them in the promised land. That's the structure. That's the rubric in Matthew's mind as he opens his gospel account in Matthew chapter 5 with the great declaration of God's blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. And as he turns and he looks towards the end of his gospel account at the curses that are ours, should we fail to recognize Jesus Christ or to hear his voice? The discourse on blessings and this discourse on curses, the former life of blessing is embodied and fulfilled is the language of the New Testament in the person of Jesus. This latter, the life of cursing, the life of woe is embodied in the life of the Pharisees and the scribes. The reason the Pharisees and the scribes figure so prominently throughout the New Testament, especially the gospel accounts, is that they embody the righteousness that is the appearance of a righteousness that neglects the character of God. And this is why Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees figure so prominently. The battle that rages every moment of every day in our own hearts is the battle between the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of our age, as embodied by the Pharisees. It's a battle that reaches its penultimate climax in the Garden of Gethsemane. The battle of faith in which we learn to pray in every circumstance, in every relationship. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this relationship as it is in heaven. In these responsibilities as it is in heaven. Not my will, but your will be done. And so as we look at this, I want us to recognize the field of battle. The field of battle. Let's recognize who it is that is on this field of battle. Because again, the tendency is for us to think, oh, those bad Pharisees. But notice 
that the entire discourse is addressed to the crowds and to his disciples. Verse 1. Yes, it's true that beginning in verse 13, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. But it's as though he is saying to his disciples, listen, as we look at the scribes and Pharisees, look at what is the natural bent of your heart. Look at the dangers to which you are naturally inclined. See what it looks like so that you can recognize it. The question for us is this. It is so easy for us to be um, uncharitable as we look at the Pharisees. Here's the question. Are the, were the Pharisees charlatans? In other words, did they know that they were hypocrites? Did they know that they were teaching things, but on the, other, on the side doing whatever they wanted? We know that such people, of course, do exist. But my question is, is that true of the Pharisees? Here's a test case. When Saul raged on the road to Damascus, did he know himself to be an enemy of God? No, he did not. Saul, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, was in fact quite sincere in his zealous pursuit of the glory of God. The Pharisees were quite sincere in their hypocrisy. We have to understand that. They thought they were being godly when in fact they were not. So the woes of Jesus to the Pharisees are more of a diagnostic for them. You think that you're pursuing godliness, but you're not. It looks like you are, but the substance is not there. It looks great on the outside, but the inside is empty, dusty, dead. If you see, as Paul reminds us, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and rulers and principalities of the spirit of the age. You and I are just as susceptible to the deceits of our enemy as the Pharisees are. The battle line is not between us and them. The battle line is not between you and your spouse. It's not between you and your children. It's not between you and your neighbor. The battle lines of this battle in which we fight are, the, are run right through the middle of our heart. It's the battle between my will and the will of God. My passions and the passions of God. My priorities and the priorities of God. My practices and the practices of God. Of God. You see, the battle lines are the battle lines that, that, that describe our own passions, priorities, and standards and the resulting idols. We have seven woes here. We're not going to look at them in detail. We can't look at them in detail. But there is a way that you can summarize them. And so in the first two, you have, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom of heaven. In people's faces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across the sea. What we have here is a manifestation of distorted passions. Here's what I mean. It's good, isn't it, to travel across the sea to make proselytes. It's not good to do that at the expense 
of others. It's a zeal, but not according to knowledge. It's a passion for righteousness that in fact destroys those who are around us. How's that happen? How's that happen in us? So we find ourselves often having a zeal for good things that come to operate, come to um, equal in our own minds biblical orthodoxy, for example. So, for example. We may have a zeal for homeschooling and say that all Orthodox Christians should homeschool, right? And so we find ourselves perhaps explicitly, occasionally, implicitly saying, I don't understand if you're a real faithful parent, why aren't you doing this? Or perhaps you're on the other end, other end of that and you have a zeal for public schooling that equals in your mind biblical orthodoxy. And so you find yourself scratching your head and saying, I don't understand, if you're a real Christian, why aren't you involved in public schools? Perhaps you have a zeal for cleanliness. After all, cleanliness is next to godliness, I'm pretty sure it says there in Timotheus. Perhaps you're a political conservative or a political liberal and you think that one or the other of those is somehow a manifestation of biblical orthodoxy. And so we find ourselves effectively slamming the door to the kingdom in people's faces. Putting a hurdle around Jesus which must be crossed before they can be considered true mature believers. Another way we tend to do it is we redefine Jesus' passion and character by commonly accepted, more accessible norms. For example, Jesus' call to holiness is replaced by the much more acceptable call to be nice. As long as I'm not being mean, that's good enough. Or perhaps Jesus' explicit call to love our enemies is replaced by the culture's mandate to be tolerant and affirming. Or perhaps even the more basic things like forgiveness. I will forgive if it is not too costly or inconvenient. We go on swears by the temple, swears by the altar, and you see what happens. They have these, this, twisted and this twisted misconception of the way the world is structured, of what takes precedence and priority over others. We find ourselves operating with misplaced criteria we clean the outside while we leave the inside full of greed and self-indulgence. And all of it leads finally to just to idolizing the things that affirm us and confirm us. And so we love our theology because we've adopted our theology and we understand it, we've structured it, and we've nuanced it just so, so that we can believe ourselves to be orthodox in the face of Christ's commands. 
I really wish that we could dig more into these particular woes, but the, understand this in principle. The issue is not the particular ways that they manifest in the Pharisee's life. The issue is that their passions below, their priorities below, their criteria, their standards that run below are, give manifestation to these things. The question is this. How do our underlying passions and priorities and standards express in our lives? Because you see, the life of real authenticating faith is a matter of submission to the fundamental passions and patterns and habits of God's character as revealed in Jesus Christ. That in fact shaped the world and life in it. Things of like forgiveness and love of enemy, care for the least and the lost and the lonely. What Matthew has even alluded to here in verse 24 of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, which is what Micah has called us to. You see, the call of the gospel is not simply the call to be nice. The call of the gospel is to be holy. The promise of the gospel is not that we're not going to cause trouble. The promise of the gospel is that we will be made peacemakers. Children of the living God. Many of you know, I got, just got back last, a couple weeks ago from Ghana and had the opportunity, um, some of you know, I had the opportunity to actually walk the canopy. That was really fun. In the uh, rainforest, you know, there's these rope, these rope bridges that go from treetop to treetop. But the next day, I had the opportunity to go to a Portuguese slave castle right on the coast of Ghana. It's one of several in Africa. This is the castle where, this, where those that had been captured from throughout Africa were marched to, sometimes for two or three months, marched to this castle, where they were then branded, bought and sold as slaves. We're painfully aware of our legacy. But as I stood there in this now quiet castle, and as the tour guide spoke, I became increasingly uncomfortable. Because you first walk in and there's this big courtyard at the one end of which is the big platform where people, usually auctioneers, would stand and then the people in the, in the courtyard would bid for their slaves. Opposite that, on the other side of that very same courtyard, was a church. for the worship of God. It was easy because the tour guide said, yes, this was a, a Portuguese Catholic church. Oh, shoo. man, am I glad for that, those bad Catholics. <laughs> glad I'm a Protestant. That's why I'm a Protestant, because I'm holy. And then the Dutch bought the castle. And they created a place of worship on the third floor, Dutch Reformed Church. Ooh, that strikes close to home. <laughs> and we went up there, and it's on the third floor. And there's a smaller courtyard three floors down. It's the courtyard 
that is in the middle of the rooms where the women were held, the slave women were held. And on one side of this sanctuary overlooking the beautiful ocean was this sign that said, the presence of God. And on the other side were these windows. This is days before air conditioning, that these windows were open. Three floors down were these women, slaves who lived in their own filth. The smells had to have been unavoidable. The sounds were certainly unavoidable. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. The end of worship. And I thought to myself, how is it possible to worship the living God with the smells and sounds of slavery from three floors down? was possible because we have a tendency, don't we, to blind ourselves to our passions and our priorities and our criteria. These were good people. The Dutch Reformed and the Portuguese Catholic were faithful people that were blinded to their own inhumanity. What is it, I thought, what is it about me that I'm blind to? What is it that Jesus wants, what is it, wants to grab my attention and shake me up and say, Dan, it's a dead end. It's a deadly road. It's a destructive road. You find yourself groaning you find yourself exhausted. Might it be that we are laboring under the crushing weight of distorted passions and misplaced priorities? Remember, after all, this is a question that is posed to us in deep love by Jesus himself. The language of woe here is the language uh, that unites wrath and pain and anger and sorrow because it is the passion of a lover calling out to the beloved, stop, you're killing yourself. It is not first and foremost the language of judgment. It is first and foremost the call of the lover to his beloved. If you go in that direction, you will destroy yourself and others around you. In fact, it becomes explicit in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. The woe here to the Pharisees is the woe of a lover to the beloved. You see, brothers and sisters, our hope is not that we don't have pharisaical tendencies, because we do. Our hope is not in pretending and trying to convince one another that we don't have pharisaical tendencies. 
Because we do. It's the natural bent of our fallen heart. We're all natural born Pharisees. The hope, though, is that the steadfast love of the Father abounds to us in Jesus and by His Spirit will pursue us through our self-reliant, self-justifying tendencies to make us trophies of His amazing grace. Have you ever wondered why Luke spends so much time focused on the life of Paul? Because, brothers and sisters, Paul embodies the hope of a Pharisee. And the hope of a Pharisee is not that Saul got it. The hope of the Pharisee is that Jesus is steadfastly committed to rescuing us from the natural bent of our heart. That's good news. That is really, really good news. I need to know that. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, if you have boarded the wrong train, it will, make, it will be no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. We need to be plucked from the train. To paraphrase Scott Sauls, Jesus risks disrupting our comfort and needs, not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves us far more than we can ever think or imagine. You see, the idea here is that by our sin, we are blinded to the severity of our condition. And it is a function of God's abounding love that he sends Jesus to warn us, to grab us, to call us, to call us out and say, come home, come to me. You probably know the legend of the rider who crossed the frozen lake of Constance by night without knowing it. When he reached the opposite shore and was told the, about the pathway that he had just come, he broke down horrified. But this is our human situation. The sky opens and the earth is bright. And then we hear, by grace you have been saved. In such a situation, we are like that terrified rider. When we hear the word of Jesus saying, whoa, stop, we involuntarily look back and we ask ourselves, where have I been? Over an abyss in mortal danger. What did I do? The most foolish thing I had ever attempted. What happened? I was doomed and miraculously escaped and now I am safe. And so we ask, do we really live in such danger? Yes. We live on the brink of death. But we have been saved by the risk that Jesus takes because of his great love to say to us, Woe, scribes and Pharisees, come back. Because you're killing yourself and others. Look at our Savior and at our salvation. Look at Jesus on the cross. Do you understand for whose sake he is there? 
for our sake. Not because we've got it right, but because we, are, we naturally tend by our passions and by our priorities to pursue our own glory and to rely upon ourselves. And it's a deadly way. And so he says, stop, come back, and be made new. Let's go to him in prayer.